0: We now come to the resurrection in the book of Luke, and we're going to cover all 12 verses here today. There's more to it. We'll be covering the resurrection all the way through the 24th chapter of the book of Luke. Uh, The title of the message today is The Resurrection of Jesus and What It Means to Us. I have a short title for it as well, and that is The Greatest Moment in History. And the greatest moment of history is debated. It's, it's generally around the life of Jesus. Was it his death on the cross or was it his resurrection that was the greatest moment? And since I think the resurrection is the validation of it all, if he didn't rise again, his death wouldn't have meant anything. But it's the rising from the dead that gives us our sins being forgiven and knowing that he is the first fruits of the resurrection and that we will rise from the dead with him as well. I think it's interesting that the Bible tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. I think what that means is that we know that there is life after death. We know that this isn't just it. And when we die, we're just going to go into blackness. But we know there is life after death. And the Bible is incredibly unique among any religious documents that this world has ever seen. Christianity is unique compared to any other faith that is out there because it is evidence based. We have the scriptures that foretell the future. We have prophecy. We have the historicity of Jesus and these events that we're going to be studying today. And I want to talk to you some about what top scholars say. These are not Christian scholars. They may be. Christian scholars believe this as well. But there are secular New Testament scholars that teach at secular colleges who will attest To the historicity of the things that we are covering today and i'll point that out here in just a few minutes but i thought we'd start in a couple of verses that tell us of the importance of the resurrection i don't think i need to convince you guys how important the resurrection is we know it's important but listen to what it says in romans 10 9 and 10. it says that if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus that is you're confessing now that he's your lord you're going to do what he says the lord jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the believing in the resurrection is part of Christianity. It's part of what a Christian is, is to believe in it. And it is to believe, to make a decision. I'm going to believe. With believing, sometimes there comes doubts. It, there is unbelief, where you just say, I don't believe it. And then there is, I believe it, and there may be doubts that are connected with it, but I want to talk to you about how doubts can end up being a positive thing a little bit later on in our study. It goes on to say, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Again, on the importance of the resurrection, Romans 1, 3 through 4 says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. So, Paul's writing to the Romans about Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection declared him as the Son of God with power because he was not kept in the grave. And as I said so many times up to this point, as we've been looking at his crucifixion, his death and his burial, these things were foretold in the Old Testament. Even that he was going to rise again was foretold. And it was fulfilled just as it was foretold. Now, Luke 24 uh, verse one says, "'Now on the first day of the week, "'very early in the morning, "'they and certain other women with them "'came to the tomb bringing spices, "'which they had prepared.' The first ones to experience the empty tomb to discover the resurrection of Jesus were the women who had been at the cross. They'd seen him crucified. They'd seen him die. They were there when they, when they put the spear in his side. That, not that that killed him, but it was the evidence that he was dead. They saw that and they knew he died. They saw him taken off of the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, cared for lovingly by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were both part of the Sanhedrin. They had seen it all, watched the tomb that they were buried in, which was a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. These are the first eyewitnesses to it. Now, the fact that Jesus is buried in a tomb that everybody knew, and Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent person And he was buried in a prominent person's tomb is one of the reasons that New Testament scholars look back at it and go, we know that Jesus was buried and they knew where the body was and that the tomb was empty. Because Christianity blew up in Jerusalem. First of all, blew up in Jerusalem right after this all happened. So you have the resurrection and then the church starts in Jerusalem and takes off. If they're talking about Joseph of Arimathea, they're talking about an empty tomb and these things weren't true, then the church would not have taken off. On top of that, the enemies declared that there was an empty tomb. Remember, they said the disciples stole the body. They came up with this argument. There's the the first explanation of why the tomb was empty was by the enemies of Christ that the tomb, that, that the disciples stole it. Now, follow the logic here they wouldn't have declared the disciples stole the body if the body wasn't missing. If they were able to go and to produce the body, then they wouldn't have to come up with why the body was missing. So this is why the vast majority, and I mean vast majority, of New Testament scholars believe that the tomb was empty. That Jesus was, that he lived that he died under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he was buried, and that the tomb was empty on the third day. The vast majority of them believe it. I was uh, playing golf with someone a couple of years ago, and not a Christian, and they wanted to tease me. And so he said to me, uh, Jesus was a myth. He goes, You know, do you know Jesus was a myth? And I go, He wasn't a myth. And they go, He was a myth. And, and I'm trying to just move on now. I don't want to argue with him on the golf course. He's like, Jesus was a myth. I'm like, he wasn't a myth, and he keeps it up. Two or three holes later, he says it again. You just can't handle it that Jesus was a myth, can you? And I'm like, listen, what you've got to do is go and look it up. The, the, the vast consensus of scholars speak of the historicity of Jesus, and he's not a myth. Back in the late 1800s, there was this hopefulness among critics that Jesus was a myth, but there is so much evidence for him now that there is virtually no scholar that says that it wasn't a myth so i tell him this and i finally say i don't want to talk about it anymore just go and look it up so the, I, I play golf with him a couple weeks later and the first thing he says to me is i don't want to talk about it but i looked it up and you're right <laughs> so so i had said i don't want to talk about it anymore go look it up he went and looked it up and came back and that it was right now that doesn't mean this is really important i'm not saying The majority of New Testament scholars believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't. What they will say is we don't know what happened. They don't have a good explanation as to what happened. They'll say it was empty, but we don't believe in the supernatural, so we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. So as a good scholar, they don't wanna believe in the supernatural. For me, if you aren't willing to examine the evidence of the supernatural then you're living by your belief, you're, you're living by faith. You're saying, I don't believe the supernatural can happen, so I'm not even gonna look into it. Now you're just, it's, it's like a blind faith. And that's what we get accused of, is having a blind faith. We don't have a blind faith. We have a reasonable faith. We have an educated faith. Yes, we live by faith. We trust that God has called us and that he's gonna raise us from the dead again. And we believe that. But it's not a blind leap into the dark. I like to call it a reasonable leap into the light. That we say, look, there's evidence for Christianity, as I said, unlike any other world religion, which is very powerful. Now, it says that these women prepared spices and they came to the tomb. And you've got to know these women's hearts are breaking. They've been there, seen Jesus die. They followed Jesus. In fact, listen to what it says in Luke 8. 2, and 3. This is a particular role women played in the ministry of Jesus. It says, uh, this is Luke 8, 2, and 3. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, so we know this includes Mary Magdalene, because she had seven spirits cast out of her. Mary called Magdalene, which it says, out of whom came seven demons. I could have just kept reading instead of telling you that. <laughs> and Joanna, the wife of uh, uh, Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So these were wealthy women and other women who joined them that followed after the disciples during the ministry of Jesus, and they cared for them. That was the role of the women in the ministry of Jesus. And then they followed him to the cross, followed him to the tomb, and now they've waited past the the Sabbath day And now they show up and they have their spices ready to go in and take care of the body of Jesus, which was the role of the women in their day. Men had done it because they'd gotten permission to take the the body of Jesus off the cross, but now they want to get in and care for it. And um, so it says in verse two, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They had been concerned about who was going to remove it for them. There was as many as six or seven women that came to the tomb. Now, this is another point that critics will make. That in the book of John, there's Mary Magdalene that goes to the tomb. One of the other gospels that speaks of, of two women or three women going to the tomb. So the number isn't always the same. And so they'll say that this is a discrepancy in scripture. Now, there are discrepancies in scripture and there are answers to those discrepancies. I, I, we, we would call them apparent discrepancies. Critics would call them discrepancies. But this is not one of them. Uh, There's another one that they call a discrepancy where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he heals blind Bartimaeus. You may remember that study. If you've been going through Luke with us, we talked about Jesus healing the blind man, blind Bartimaeus. In one of the other gospels, it says that there were two blind men that came to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. One of them we know was blind Bartimaeus, but one says one and the other says two. Now that this is a discrepancy is a fallacy. About a couple of weeks ago, I went to um, to a, my uncle's funeral in Albuquerque. We decided to drive. It was the weekend that everything got crazy for Southwest. And um, praise the Lord, we decided to drive instead of fly. We would have gotten stranded in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But we drove there. And as we were driving by, we went by, I, I pointed out to Kathy, this weird little spot between Deming and Hatch that's called the middle of nowhere. That's the actual name of it, the middle of nowhere. And it is the middle of nowhere. And so if I'm telling someone, if I'm talking to someone and I say, I drove by a place called the middle of nowhere the other day. And then later on he sees me with Kathy and and she says, hey, uh, we drove by the middle of nowhere the other day. He's not going to say to me, you lied to me. You said you drove by it when really it was you too who drove by it. It is accurate for me to say I drove by the middle of nowhere. And it's accurate for so, and so another time for me to say, me and my wife drove by the middle of nowhere. It's a fallacy to call that a contradiction. It's just at a particular point in time, I deem that there's only so much information that I'm going to give. The idea that you would give all of the information that you have to everybody you speak to is silly. And when you're writing something, you're making decisions. If you're writing a factual account, you're making decisions as to what you leave out and what you put in. The same thing happens when there are eyewitnesses to a crime. uh, There's an apologist by the name of J. Warner Wallace. Uh, He spent the last uh, part of his career in law enforcement as a cold case detective. So we had to pull out cases and go back and take a look at them and re-interview eyewitnesses. And he talks about the differences that he had when he would interview eyewitnesses. They were there. They might have been in different places in the room, but they give different details. And sometimes the details seem to contradict each other. But once you get into it and you start looking, they really don't contradict them or people's recall can be slightly different. So when there's the differences between these stories, what it really proves, and this is what J. Warner Wallace will say, if, if he went and interviewed all of the, the people that saw something 20 years ago and they all say the exact same thing, he would not believe them at all. That that would be a collusion, that they would have colluded together. Not Russian collusion but collusion they would have all have colluded together and you would know that they talked because they're giving the exact same details because people see things different and they share different details so that actually attests again to the historicity of these events the fact that women are the ones who are the first ones to see the resurrection attest to it being an actual fact as well because women in their day now this isn't christianity Some might hear this and think, Christians, uh, early Christians, this is is the Roman culture, and it was the Jewish culture. Did not give a lot of credence to women witnesses. It was the culture they were living in. The Roman culture was a male-dominated culture. The Jewish culture was a male-dominated culture. And if uh, Josephus writes that a woman could be a witness only if no man could be found to be a witness sounds misogynistic in our day i know we listen to it now josephus is just telling you the way it was in their day and so if they were making the story up if they were going let's make up a story how the tomb was empty let's say that the women went there they found it empty and jesus appeared to them first they probably wouldn't do that um, the uh, textual critics call that the criterion of embarrassment you're not if you're making up a story you generally don't tell embarrassing things about yourself if they're not true. If you're going to tell something embarrassing, it's probably true. You're not going to make up embarrassing things that aren't true. Uh, for an, an example of this is from the Gospel of Peter, which is not a biblical gospel. It's one of the Gnostic Gospels that Dan Brown talked about in his movie that was a competing Christianity. The Gnostics were never competing The gospels were written in the first century, the gospels, the first century, the Gnostic gospels were written 100, 200 years after these gospels were written. So the story of the resurrection in the Gospel of Peter goes like this, that the guards were witnesses of the resurrection and that the Sanhedrin had decided to spend the night all 70 of them outside of the tomb as well and so they were witnesses to the resurrection and the town folk had slept outside of the tomb of Jesus so the people from Jerusalem all decided let's have a sleepover and they went out and they slept around the tomb of Jesus so this is them trying to give credence to it by the Sanhedrin by the Roman soldiers by the people of the town that saw it then there's a noise and the tombstone rolls away by itself and two angels come down from heaven and enter the tomb. And then when they come out of the tomb, as soon as they come out of the tomb, they grow and their heads reach the heavens. These two angels become super large and their heads hit the sky. And then Jesus comes out of the tomb and these angels are burying him and his head rises higher than their head does. So his head disappears. And then they go outside of the tomb and the cross follows them out of the tomb. How the cross got in the tomb, I have no idea. But now the cross follows him out of the tomb and the cross says something. The cross declares something. That is an exaggerated story. When you are looking at the gospels, they are the simple basics of the truth. The gospel, the the tomb was found empty and then you have Jesus appearing to people. When we get to the appearances of, of Jesus, we'll talk about Uh, what could be going on there, what people are trying to say what's happening, because there's no doubt that people believed that Jesus appeared to them. Again, this is what scholars will say. People believed Jesus appeared to them. We're going to say Jesus appeared to people. They're going to say there's no doubt that they believed it. We'll talk about why that's the case when we get there. All right, let's move on a little bit here. Uh, Verse four, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. So the, the stones rolled away. They go in the tomb, and it's empty, and now they're confused because they saw the body of Jesus laid in this new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And that's always a dead giveaway when the garments are shining. So all of a sudden there's two men, and often angels are spoken of as men, by the way. I don't, uh, other than cherubim or seraphim, we don't see angels with wings. That's, you know, that's how people always draw them, but we don't see them. They appear as men, but these guys have shining garments. Then they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, and then they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Why had they not remembered them before that? Jesus spoke often in parables, often in things they didn't understand. At one point, Jesus said to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, he's obviously making a point that this leaven can can infiltrate, like leaven can to bread, right? You lay it out, it gets into every part of the bread. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples said to one another, we forgot to bring bread. They just so, just so mis- under, misinterpreted Jesus. And when you hear the things Jesus says, he says things that are puzzling. And so when he said, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, they were like, okay, yeah, get it. You know, like, I don't think they quite understood it. But now they remembered it and they see it. Sometimes seeing things after the fact can help you to truly understand it. And certainly that this was literal, they all of a sudden, they understand it. And so uh, then in verse nine, then they returned uh, from the tomb and told all of these things to the 11 and the rest. Now, why they were leaving, Jesus appeared to them. So they not only saw the empty tomb, but they saw Jesus appear to them. This is in the other gospels. But they get back to the disciples and they say these things to them. And then verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them. So that's the answer. How many women were there at the tomb? We don't know. We know who certain specific women were. We know the mother of Jesus was there. We know that Mary Magdalene was there. We know that Joanna was there, but we, with the wife of Clo- uh, Clopas was there, but that's it. There were other women that were there with them. And this is the answer when people start talking about the differences between the Gospels and the amount of women. It's that other women were there. The Bible says other women were there. And then it goes on to say, who told these things to the apostles and their words seemed like them to be idle tales and they did not believe them. So the apostles don't believe when they hear. And this is going to be an ongoing story as the as the resurrection unfolds. They don't believe it. They don't believe it. Even when others come along and tell them they don't believe. Even at the ascension, which is the last thing we're going to cover in the book of Luke, Jesus ascends in the clouds up into heaven and is going to send the Holy Spirit down for the church. And it says that as they watched him go into heaven, some of them didn't believe. Because it's miraculous. Because it's Supernatural. Because it's a supernatural event and you're going to struggle through not believing. I, I remember as a kid, I grew up in the United Methodist Church and we had a sunrise, an Easter sunrise service. And I remember being maybe 9, 10, 11, right around that age. And I remember being there in the park for the sunrise service and thinking, did Jesus really rise from the dead? We're all talking about it like Jesus rose from the dead. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And I suspect That every one of us here has had something like that happen. That we have to fight through our own struggles as to something supernatural happening. Do supernatural things happen? Did God send his son to die for our sins, to rescue us, to send us to heaven? Now, I want to consider some of these doubts because doubts can go one of two ways. If you have doubts, it can become devastating to your faith. People have been driven from the faith because they get so filled with doubts. The Bible says that a man who is full of doubts is like driven by the wind. But doubts can also drive you into finding the truth. And that's what happened to me when I faced my first crisis of faith. When I I had some doubts, it drove me into really searching things out and finding the evidence for what was there, and it bolstered my faith. And when you are struggling with doubts, You can search into things or you can let it overwhelm you and consume you. Listen to uh, Doubting Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? Because all the other disciples had seen Jesus and they tell Thomas and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas is like, unless I put my fingers in his hand and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. So in John 20, 26 through 29, Jesus shows up when Thomas is there. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Now, Thomas had demanded, I will only believe if he does this. So here's Jesus saying, go ahead, put your hand in here. Thomas doesn't do it, but listen to what happens to Thomas. This is all set up by his doubt. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. That's one of the greatest confessions in all of the New Testament. Again, my Lord, that means you, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say. You are my Lord, my Lord and my God. He confesses Jesus to be God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you, are, you, you, uh, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So here we are, those that have not seen, and we have believed. And there is a blessing that is in that. Now, Mark 9, 22 through 24 says, And often he has thrown him both into. This, this is, let me set you up for this. This is a, this is a demon uh, possessed boy, and his father has gone to the disciples to have his son delivered. Jesus comes off of the Mount of Transfiguration. And the father approaches Jesus. Okay, listen to what's said. So it starts off, he's talking about what this demon does to his son. He says, and often he has thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus delivers the child. And I've often felt like that statement is something I say to him. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There are times when we face those doubts. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One more, Romans ten ten. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It doesn't mean you believe because there's certainty. It means you make a decision to believe with reasonable faith. Now, verse 12 tells us that Peter arose. So they tell the rest of them, that, that Jesus uh, has, the, the tomb is empty, that he's risen from the dead. And now we know this, that John tells us this is Peter and John that get up and run to the tomb. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now we know that this is Peter and John, and John outruns him to the tomb. John, being younger, outruns him to the tomb. And and running is truly a young man's sport. Those of us who are older understand that, right? You get to a certain year age and you're going, I don't know why I ever ran. The only reason I run is if a bear's chasing me. That's it. That's the reason I run. Other than that, I don't run anymore. But John beats him to the tomb. John's the youngest of the disciples. And John stands outside and looks in, and Peter goes in and looks at it. And John goes in then and believes. John is the first of the apostles' disciples to believe. But here we have Peter going to the empty tomb and believing. Now, let's consider the importance of the resurrection to the Christian life. What is the importance to you and me of the resurrection? I want to start in 1 Corinthians 15. There were a group of people in Corinth, which was kind of a wild church, they had all kinds of problems, who were teaching that there was no resurrection. This wasn't unique just to these group of people in this church in Corinth. The the Sanhedrin, or excuse me, the Sadducees were a religious group who believed that there was no resurrection. That everything that you lived, you live for God right now. There were obviously a group of them in Corinth, and so Paul is writing to tell them why they are wrong. And you'll get that as we make our way through this text. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. This is Paul's thinking. If you guys are saying there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that, uh, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. That's if you, what you're saying is true, they didn't raise it up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ did not rise. And if Christ did not rise, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the importance of the resurrection. If Christ didn't rise, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So all of those who have gone before us have perished as well. He says, if then, this life only, we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Then he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the first fruits for you and me. When they would collect first fruits, they would collect the first thing they harvested and give it to God. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and we will one day be resurrected with him. Paul said, and, and not everyone's going to sleep, but some are going to be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. That's at the resurrection that that happens. Now listen to what Peter says about the resurrection. This is 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Begotten us again could be translated caused us to be born again. Has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So not only did he die for us on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins, a death being required, but the resurrection was required. We are, he's caused us to be born again by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Romans 8:11 says, but at the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same power that brought Him out of the grave is at work within you. And when you are baptized as a Christian, you go under the water in the likeness of His death, being buried with Him, dying with Him, and you come out of the water in the likeness of His resurrection. We are not just waiting to live the resurrection in the future, but we are empowered by the Spirit to live in that righteousness now. One more, and then we'll wrap it up. Colossians 3, 1. If then you were raised with Christ. So we talked about being buried with Christ last week. And we talked about dying with Christ the week before that, when we saw Jesus die on the cross. So we've died with him, we've been buried with him, and now we rise with him. This is why Paul says the life that I now live, I no longer live to myself, but I live to God. We live for him now because we've died with him, we've been buried with him, and we rise with him. So he says in Colossians 3, 1, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ in God. Where Christ who is our life, when Christ who is our life appears, we will also appear with him. And he's not just talking about this positional aspect of being with him. We will be with him when Jesus returns. Now, there are four things that we know that that scholars will say that they know about the life of Jesus. That he lived and that he died and was buried. That's one. I know I said three things, but one. That's one. Number two, that the tomb was empty. Number three, that women were witnesses. And number four, that the disciples started out with unbelief, but that turned into belief. There was some event that caused them to believe And of course, we know that was the appearance of Jesus to the disciples. Uh, Critical scholars will come up with their own ideas, but we know it was the appearance of Jesus to them. Three things in closing. Number one, uh, we do not operate by blind faith. We have an evidence-based faith. It doesn't mean we have certainty. Believing is is getting enough faith to go, I'm going to be okay. We live by faith all the time. Every time you jump on a freeway, you go down the road, you are not certain you're going to survive that experience. But by faith, it's reasonable that you're going to drive down the road, right? It's kind of reasonable. And if somebody says, do you know uh, for 100% that that plane's not going to crash? I don't, uh, wish you wouldn't have brought that up. But no, I don't know for 100% that the plane's not going to crash. But it's reasonable. They, they make it there. So we live by faith all the time. I went to a restaurant last night. I ate a meal from the restaurant, believing that it was going to be, nothing was going to hurt me out of that meal. Was I 100% certain? No, but I believed it and did it. And so we live for Christ. And when someone pushes us, are you 100% certain? Sometimes we can go, I don't, I don't know. But that doesn't mean it's not reasonable for us to live for him. Number two, we have been raised with Christ. We are now living for him. The life we now live, we live for him. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We're called ambassadors, living our lives for him. And number three, doubt is something that can be used to either unrail your faith or it can be used to bolster your faith. If you'll take a look at doubts and say, I want to find out what the truth is. And here's the thing. If we're living the truth, and I believe that we are, I don't want to live my life for a lie. I don't want to preach a lie. I want to preach the truth. And if we're living the truth, then it can be put to the test with scrutiny. You don't have to be afraid of doubting. You can go and look into it and test it. Because if it can't stand up to that, then it's not the truth. We want to know what the truth is, believe and follow the truth. So when you find yourself doubting, then seek it out Find out what's there. There's so much evidence. It's absolutely amazing. Evidence for the, the scriptures, uh, prophecy, all kinds of things uh, that you can get in and look at that are so very powerful. This is one of the reasons, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to wrap it up, I promise. But we have people like Lee Strobel, who was a, a, um, a journalist for, I think it was the Chicago Tribune. And his wife got saved. And he set out to disprove Christianity to her. He was like, I'm going to go put my journalist work together. I'm going to prove Christianity is wrong. And he became a Christian. Frank Morris was a lawyer. He wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And he set out to disprove Christianity, thinking I'm a lawyer, I'm going to prove Christianity is wrong. He ended up being a Christian. Josh McDowell has the same kind of thing happening in his life. These men, wanting to put their tools to work to disprove Christianity, have come to the place where they become Christians because the evidence is so reasonable. Maybe even so compelling, but it's reasonable. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that there is this evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And even though we have to believe by faith that you rose from the dead, the fact that there's so much evidence for your existence, for the existence of Jesus, for the burial of Jesus, for the empty tomb, is absolutely an amazing thing. And something that really, Sets the critics on edge. And Lord, we're thankful that your word works in us. And Lord, we believe because we love you. We believe in you. We pray that you would do a work in us as we believe in you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.